open your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. As uh, we continue this series of talks, and um, I'm going to let you tell everyone else what this series of talks is called. So I'm going to count to three, and you guys are going to say it. This will be a warm-up round for when we actually get to our statement. So we're in this series of talks called one, two, three. God didn't say that, all right? And the whole point of this series of talks is to look at common phrases or things we might hear, uh, especially uh, that we hear um, referenced from people who claim the name of Christ or we hear it maybe in the church or uh, when we're thinking about trial or other things that have happened. These might be things that someone says or uh, whatever else it may be. You fill in the blank of when you've heard these things. But... Uh, here at Ephraim and Canton, we want to be a people that's devoted to truth. Okay, everyone say truth. All right, that needs to be key. It needs to be core. It needs to be foundational. And ultimately, we believe the leader, and when I say we, I reference the leadership of the, of the church body. Okay, that's not just me. All right, that's our, that's our elders. That's uh, the people who serve in ministry context. That's, we're talking all of us corporately. Believe that we can't have a standard of truth that is based on someone here or someone, a human person's opinion, because then who's right? Who's really honest? Who's really true? And um, something like that is called a relativism, all right? Relativism is simply the term that means what's true for you may not be true for me. And when we really hone down into the core of that, it, there's really no truth at all, Right? Because if what's true for you is not true for me, then that means I can't really find any absolute truth in anything. Well, we believe we can find absolute truth in God's Word. Okay? This is, this is where we turn. This is where we go to. And this is the foundation upon which we need to build everything else that we believe. If, the, if, if that falls apart, okay, if God's truth falls apart, everything else falls apart with it. All right? But if it's just my opinion or your opinion, or your perspective, that's a, that's a slippery slope we can travel down. And so as we think about these statements, we want to go to God's Word, we want to go to God's truth, and understand this. And uh, before we get into uh, the core of what we're going to be talking about today, I just want to give you a, a brief introduction to the book of, of 1 Timothy. And uh, this is really a letter. And at the very beginning of this letter, Paul states that he's writing this to Timothy, all right, Timothy, his true son in the faith. OK, so think about this context as Paul, as the spiritual father of sorts to Timothy. And he's writing this letter. And throughout this letter, you start in the beginning of Timothy and he warns Timothy about false teachers and he brings up some things that Timothy needs to remember. And you get into the later portions of this. You get into uh, 1 Timothy 3. And that's where we find the fundamental foundation of qualifications for elders and deacons. Okay? And then you get into chapter 4. And one of the most quoted passages in 1 Timothy 4 is Paul's statement to Timothy that says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example for them in speech and in conduct. He goes on. And on there. And so what we can determine about this is Timothy is a young leader in the church. He's a young leader in the church and he's been given this great task set before him. And Paul is writing as his spiritual father and saying, Timothy, 
root into these things, be weary of these things, pay attention to this. And near the end of the book, he regroups and comes back to this place and says, make sure you come back to a place where you pursue these things. You pursue contentment, you pursue righteousness, you pursue godliness, okay? And so as we're uh, looking specifically in 1 Timothy 6, I would challenge you after today, if you didn't do so earlier this week, to read through the whole letter of 1 Timothy. And if you could get your hands on a reader's Bible, that's an even better way to read it, because sometimes as we read through Scripture and we hit those chapter numbers or the verse numbers, our brain mentally thinks, okay, I read a chapter, I read two chapters, I'm going to stop there. And yet, if we really look at Scripture, how Scripture was written, how it was penned, it wasn't necessarily meant to be segmented up like that so rapidly that we miss the whole, okay? And so, reading through from start to finish and really processing through that will give you a blanketed picture and stuff may start to make sense. And all that a reader's Bible is, and I'm just promoting a tool for you as a church, okay, is uh, it takes out the verses and the chapter numbers, and it's just the text. Okay? So if you've never used one of those, I would encourage you in your personal study, look into that. It's a great way to read God's Word and, and glean new from it. And you'd be amazed. I was amazed when I uh, started doing that in my personal uh, reading of Scripture. But specifically today, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 6, and um, the phrase we're going to be looking at has been up here, okay? And I'm going to say it, and you're going to respond. Money is the root of all evil. That's right, he didn't say that. And we're going to look at exactly what he said. Now, I'm curious, how many of you have heard this statement before? Just like it's written, right here, okay? Alright? Okay, most of us have. And in fact... This statement, you could probably find people who have preached on this statement. It's a scary thing to me, okay? And what we're going to understand today, um, what I pray you gather in this, this, uh, this is kind of the main, our main focus today is what we love has a profound impact or a primary impact on how we live. Okay? What we love has a profound or You could put slash primary impact on how we live. So if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to remember that phrase. Jot that phrase down. Recite that phrase. Okay? What we love has a profound slash primary impact on how we live. But let's look at 1 Timothy 6, and we're going to start in verse 3 of 1 Timothy 6. It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, everyone say godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second and just rehash this a little bit. Okay, In those first few verses, Paul is encouraging Timothy, hey, 
make sure that you're paying attention to what is being taught around you. And if you were to go back to the first chapter in this, you would see Paul's whole warning on false teachers. This was a, an issue in Timothy's day and age as he's trying to do ministry, as he's walking through these things. This is a problem. Okay? Everyone say it's a problem. And we could say the same thing about today. Okay? And in some ways, there are immensely further challenges when it comes to false teachings and false doctrines because the avenue by which those can be given and received is so much easier. Timothy did not have to deal with the World Wide Web. Okay? Timothy was not dealing with social media. And there is a lot of influential factors in your life, church, that are going to state things that you need to keep in check. And I wish that I could say that all false news only comes from people outside the church, but it doesn't. And so we have to pay really close attention to what's being shared. What am I saying is true? Because if I fail... To speak truth consistently over and over again, I lose my ability to have rapport when I actually do want to speak truth. Okay? If I am not consistent in checking what I am speaking, what I am believing to be true against the Word of God, and in this case, he's saying, um, against the Word of our Lord Jesus Christ then I need to be concerned, okay? Everything that we believe, everything that we do should line up with what Jesus taught. It should line up with what Scripture says. And if there's something contrary to that, I should call that into question. And that's what he's encouraging. He's starting on the foundation that we are pursuing, the foundation of truth, teach, um, Warnings about the type of people that are teaching false doctrines, okay? And instead is encouraging, uh, make sure you're aware that the doctrine that's being taught, that the beliefs that are being taught are in accordance with, are accurate with what Jesus himself has said. Now, let's uh, pick that up at verse 6 and read on. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Everyone say content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Heavenly Father, as we exposit this text this morning, I pray that you would challenge our thinking when it comes to money, when it comes to godliness, when it comes to contentment. Lord, help us to see clearly what you have called us to as followers of Christ, as your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to highlight here, God's concern is true godliness. We see this term mentioned throughout this text in verse specifically as we look at the first uh, five verses that we read, verses three through five. 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Hey, there it is. And it goes into these descriptions about this type of person. In verse 5, it says again, in constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And then again in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now notice there for a second that there is a type of quote-unquote godliness that is not true godliness. Where he highlights the same people who are teaching a false doctrine that's not in accordance with Jesus' teachings, and they're convinced that this quote-unquote godliness is a means to personal gain. It's a means to them that uh, they are going to benefit from themselves being godly. Now, the challenge of this is that all throughout Scripture there is this theme. You see this theme of God coming back to a desire of His people to follow after Him. So what changes when all of a sudden I see godliness as a means to personal gain? Well, the core of what changes is that now I am no longer serving God because I see Him as worthy to be praised, worthy to be served, worthy to be worshipped. I'm serving God because it's what's best for me. And all of a sudden, my personal devotion to Christ becomes selfish in nature. And pursuing the things that He has called me to, living in obedience to Him, I'm not doing any of that in the minute. I'm not doing any of that because I want to serve God. I'm doing it because, man, this is benefiting me. And the danger of that is the moment that we feel like it stops benefiting us, we walk away. Church, there's a lot of people around us who are following Jesus because right now it's the convenient thing to do and they see an advantage, a personal advantage in pursuing these things. But it's not rooted in a foundation to say, God, I see your grace lived out through Christ. I recognize my inability to do this on my own. We've got to shift our focus. That's a, that's a big warning sign for us. True practicing godliness is when we make Him our priority. Okay? When we shift our focus, and we could call in, into uh, the reality of the passage in Hebrews chapter 12. And it says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely... And run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's my life verse. If you ever ask me what my focus passage is, it's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Because in everything that I do, I want to pursue Christ first. I want to have my eyes fixed on Him because the minute that we dart our eyes away from Jesus, away from truth... The easiest place for us to go is back to ourselves. We've got to guard ourselves from that. God's concern is with true godliness. And church, let me tell you, it doesn't matter what stage of life you're at. It doesn't matter where you're at financially. It doesn't matter where you're at relationally. It doesn't matter where you're at in culture's eyes. You have the same 
opportunity to pursue godliness as the person sitting right next to you. Every single one of us has access to the same truth and the same God. But in order for us to understand and start to live out this idea of true godliness, we first have to understand what he's called us to. What does true godliness really look like? The second thing we see in this text is what I call the dynamic duo of great gain. Now, how many of you guys would really like, when you hear the word gain, okay, how many of you like that term? You're going to gain something from this. How many of us like to hear that? Honestly, I like to hear that, okay? If I put my uh, money in the bank and they say, hey, you're going to gain interest on that, that's a good thing. When I get a bill in the mail and it says, well, you're going to lose that, that's not a fun thing. Okay, but this is a formula, a formula for us to pursue great gain. Specifically, look at verse 6 again. But godliness with contentment is great. Everyone say great. Gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now that is a challenging statement. Just those few words. We could read those this morning and sit on that and spend the rest of our time in prayer over that and that would be a phenomenal challenge for this week. Godliness with contentment is great gain. As I was studying this week, I came across a quote or really a definition of contentment that Warren Wearsby wrote in one of his commentaries. And this is how he defined contentment. He said, it's an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. It's an inward, an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. And here's the narrative that takes place, church. I'm content. Man, I'm thankful. It's November. I'm going to do 30 days of thankfulness leading up to that day. And I got all these, man, I'm so grateful. Boom! I'm hit with something out of the blue. Where's my focus go? That one thing. And now I'm upset with God. Is this not being taken away? God, what are you doing? I, I was doing all this stuff for you. I was living my life like you told me to. Man, I was doing everything right. We say that to ourselves, believe it or not. This is how you treat me. Where does that contentment go? You see, as human beings, church, we're so prone. We're so prone to lose sight of what's really important. And we become so focused on that which is temporary and all, all this other stuff. And even my, even my own personal health is temporary. Do we, do we recognize that? 
that this is not my my eternal home. I, this, all right. Here, here's a here's a memo for you. Okay, some hard truth. This body is going to die, one way or another. Whether it's death of this body when we are renewed in eternity, or you physically die. Okay. Now, what that means is we're going to have some aches and pains. We're going to hurt, okay? It's coming, no matter what. So when that stuff starts happening, it shouldn't surprise us. And if we start thinking like that, all of a sudden, in the midst of that, I can still be content because God is still sovereign. God's still in control. And if my hope is rooted in Christ, then... It doesn't matter, because though this body's going to die, I know that I have eternal hope and glory. But see, we don't think like that. Instead, we pursue, maybe pursue the, the quote-unquote godliness aspect of it. But when it comes to contentment, it depends on my circumstances. It depends on what I'm dealing with. Well, I might be content today, but tomorrow, you know, you never know what might happen. And church, we've got to root into this idea that I just need to have a spirit of contentment all the time. I should be rooting into the truth that I brought nothing into the world, verse 7, and I cannot take anything out of the world. Look at verse 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Is that true? That is really hard in American culture. And I'm going to tell you, there are people all over the world who embody verse 8. And they may not even know where their food's coming from tomorrow. But they're content. Because I have food for today, and I got clothes on my back. Keep trudging along. God is faithful. And we're going to understand how this is significant As we move into this next focal point, which really comes back to the statement that we started with. And that's one of the biggest threats to all of this. Look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into... Now I want you to... I'll pause there a minute. Those who desire to be rich. Everyone say desire. That's really important, okay? This does not say that everyone who is rich, okay? Big difference. This goes back to our main point. What we love has a profound impact on how we live. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love, everyone say love, of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, what's interesting about verse 10, and this is a challenge to me, Because literally the statement here goes, the love of money is the root of all evil. 
And in most of our translations now, it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And as I studied that, I came to the realization that both can be true. And we can miss the point if we get stuck on that. Okay, we can miss the whole of this, which is a focus that one of the biggest threats to me pursuing godliness, one of the biggest threats to me being content is this idea of loving money, desiring money, desiring to be rich. Now, in all honesty, how many of you like to talk about money? There's a couple of you that do. In fact, I, I know people in our congregation that they, they deal with money every day for their job and they love it. God bless you guys. Okay? Because there's a lot of us that just don't. And it stresses us out and makes us really upset sometimes or is a temptation at times. How, now, here's another one. How many of you like to have someone else tell you what to do with your money? See? Okay. How many of you would admit, though, that money is a powerful entity? All of us should, okay? All of us should. God apparently thought so because money is one of the most talked about subjects in Scripture. You know that? Money ranks right up there with love and sin. Think about that for a minute, okay? And yet, it's one of the things we avoid teaching the most because there's a lot of, and I'll speak, I'll speak to this, there's a lot of pastors that are afraid to talk about money because they don't want to get fired. Okay? But God saw it really important that we talk about money. This is, this is a crucial thing. And in a way that we're pursuing godliness, okay, this comes back to fixing our eyes on Jesus. And there's pastors out there, there's teachers out there that teach on money for, again, back to what Paul warned about, because they see it as a way to personal gain. And I want you to know, just from my mouth, that any time we open God's Word and talk about money, my prayer is that this would not be something that is viewed or seen as personal gain, but rather a way for us to gain the most by pursuing godliness with contentment. Okay? There's a big difference in the midst of that. God thinks that this is important. God had the foresight to understand and know that this was not merely a struggle at the time of this letter. Rather, it is a threat to every pursuit of Christ we set our minds to. Matthew 5.24, Jesus himself said, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And he says this right after, You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot. These are right from Jesus' mouth. We can't serve two masters. Now, this is where this gets exciting. Okay? I really like to use chainsaws. That's what I have. It makes you feel really powerful. When you walk up to this tree, okay, and it's bigger than... Bigger around than like four people. This was a really big thing out west in Oregon, okay? Because the trees are straight up. Your telephone poles come from where we lived in Oregon, all right? And these trees are straight up 150 to 200 feet in the air. And man, they are so big around. I'm not even kidding. The span of my arms would not go a fourth of the way around these, some of these trees. And when they f- would fall these trees, it was so cool. It was so cool. 
But the reality that I'm honing for, and I have to admit that I didn't just make up this illustration. I heard this illustration, and Brandon brought it to my attention, and I was going, I'm going to use that illustration. This is a really good illustration, and I get to hold a chainsaw on stage. But this is a tool. This is a tool, okay? And I could choose to chase my mother-in-law with it. Or my neighbor that I don't like. And that would be wrong. Or I could choose to use it for the purpose it was intended to be used for. I could choose to use this and be really productive with it. Or I could choose to use it in a way that is just not smart. And this could do a lot of damage. This could rip a lot of things apart. This could hurt people. This could hurt structures. This could be used in ways that are not okay. But the responsibility for how that's used comes back to the one holding its power. It's not going to do that on its own. Church, money's the same way. Money's a tool. And it's a necessary tool when we think about what goes on day to day and taking care of needs. It was a necessary tool in the day and age that Scripture was being penned. But if we ever view it as more than just a tool, we miss the point. And we set ourselves up for some major failure. So I want to give, as we think about shifting into an application and finishing up on this concept, this thought, I want to give you two, two focuses. One, the first one is, what are symptoms or warning signs that I struggle with a love of money? Okay? What are the symptoms? What are the struggles? And I like this. I like to think this way because it helps me to analyze my own life and go, okay, where do I need to shift my perspective a little bit? What are the signs I need to look out for? First one here. This is a symptom or a warning sign that you may be struggling with the love of money. You think about slash fret about money all the time. You're just consumed by it. And I'm not talking about you guys that work with money every day. I understand you do that for your job. Okay? This is you personally, your personal money, the personal tool that you've been given. Do you just fret about that and think about that nonstop? Is that all you're consumed by? It's a pretty good sign. One of the challenging things I read this week that has been just going over and over and over in my mind since I read it. Suppose someone were to offer you $1,000 for every soul that you would earnestly try to lead to Christ. Would you endeavor to lead any more than you already are? Is your love of money stronger than your love of God? That, that hit me like a brick wall this week. Someone offered you $1,000 for every single soul that you earnestly sought to share Christ with. Would you share Christ more? That, that's a pretty good test, okay? It's a pretty good test. Secondly, it's another warning sign. You hoard money for your own purposes slash security. 
Is your security rooted in finances? That's the case. There's a potential that there's a bit of love of money or pursuit of that because my security is no longer found in just God and His faithfulness. My security is found in my wealth. Thirdly, this is another symptom, and this is a big one. You refuse to give or be generous, okay? And that's just a general thought, all right? If I am not willing to be generous with the tool that God has lent to me, if we believe that God owns everything, all right? If I am just opposed to that, if I don't even want to think, you don't talk to me about that because that's my business, there's a pretty good chance that you're struggling with a love of money. Okay? Scripture speaks a lot about generosity. Scripture speaks a lot about those things. Okay? Something we need to think about. But the next category in this is what are the symptoms or signs of faithfully pursuing godliness? And I'm going to give you three more. One, who you are will line up with who God has called you to be. Who you are, the person you are, and this is all the time, not just who you are at church, but who you are in your own personal space will line up with who God has called you to be. Secondly, being generous will be a desire of your heart. You just long. You just long for that. Hey? You see someone in need and you, you're heartbroken over that. All right, yeah. God, I'm, I'm wrestling here. Thirdly, your security will be rooted in God no matter what struggle you are going through. No matter what's taking place. No matter what's happening. Now those are some pretty intense things to think about. But ultimately this all has to come back to a reality that's rooted in truth. It's rooted in scripture. It's rooted in who am I Pursuing who am I rooted into, myself or Christ? And that's why we gather around the communion table, which is what we're going to shift to right now. So I'm going to ask the guys that I talked to this morning to come forward to help serve communion. And as we think about this, this is the starting point. And the communion table is for those who have already believed. It's for those who have already trusted Christ. And so as we think about that, as we process that, I want us to think about 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die, everyone say die, to sin and live, everyone say live, to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strain like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. So here's what I want to challenge you with as we take communion today. I want you to think about your own pursuit of godliness. Where are the areas that you failed to pursue Christ? And spend this time, this short time, 
in confession and repentance, seeking to be in right standing before God in that way. Seeking to live that out. And then as we take communion, we're going to do so reminding ourselves that Christ died to sin. Christ died for our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the challenge with everything that we've been given. Heavenly Father, as we consider this and as we come to this table today, we, Lord, we do so reminding ourselves of the sacrifice you made of your grace given to us. And yet our constance in living and pursuing our sin. Lord, help us to see clearly through the fog of what we're supposed to do. Open our eyes to your truth and help us to pursue godliness with contentment, knowing that it's the greatest gain we can have. In Jesus' name, amen.